You know, in a video game, a lot of video games, you can play them on different difficulty levels. Well, in life, we don't really choose our difficulty level. It is chosen for us by who we are and who we appear to be, I will say. Let's use white men. It's not that they have no obstacles. It's not that they don't have to make it through to the end. It's that they're playing on a different difficulty level. For me, I think it's all about how can we try to bring the difficulty levels more in line. Hello, my friends. Oh, you are about to meet one of the wisest women I know. Elisa Kamahort Page was the founding COO of Blog Her Inc. Blog Her scaled from grassroots movement to a national women's media brand. Since leaving the company that acquired Blog Her, Elisa has served in full-time and fractional CXO roles across many different categories and verticals. But her latest venture is called Optionality. Optionality is a membership community and collaboration designed to discuss and define a new model for work. Can I get an amen? The future of work has been a hot topic for years now, but the future is now. Optionality is about giving ourselves the permission to create a new now of work in an ecosystem forging best practices and tools for doing so with like-minded collaborators coming from every part of this currently fraught conversation. Find them at optionality.life and find Elisa. She is quoted in so many different places. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Mashable, San Jose Mercury News, foxnews.com. She's also the host of her own podcast, The Op-Ed Page with Elisa Kamahort Page. And she also has the This Weekish newsletter over on Substack, which is always so smart. Elisa and I got into some very big conversations about the future of work, the now of work, what we really need to make work work for us and to bring the best out of ourselves as workers. We talked about owning your expertise, something that a lot of us struggle to own as women. And we just went all in on these topics and more. And I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So enjoy, sit back, and meet the marvelous Elisa Kamahort Page. Welcome, Elisa. I am going to need like an audio clip of that intro, and I'm just going to send it to people and say, don't listen to me, listen to Bronwyn. (laughs) Well, honey, I'm just reflecting what I see. And there's kind of a couple of different territories I want to cover with you and get your big brain on. And the first thing I want to talk about has to do with owning your expertise. You and I were sitting at a lunch a couple months ago, and I heard you talking about this and it took my breath away. And you actually have a keynote about this issue. So if anybody's listening, you want to go deeper, know that she's available for that. But talk about the realization you had when it comes to women actually owning their expertise. Well, this dates back many years. There's a great organization called the Op-Ed Project run by Katie Orenstein. And she invited me to sit in on a early, early seminar they were doing their mission was to get more women's voices, more people of color's voices, more voices who are underrepresented into the rooms that matter, onto the op-ed pages, into Mm -hmm. having influence. Mm -hmm. And so they started with this very simple expertise, asking everyone around this U-shaped table to introduce themselves by saying, hi, here's my name. Here's what I'm an expert in because, and then just give the reason. Now I had just come out of 
years in male dominated industries. And so I was just like, scribble, 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 scribble. I was ready to like lay that out because that kind of chest beady upfront with who you are and what you bring to the table was really necessary for me to survive in those environments. Yeah. But I was at the end of the U-shaped table. So I watched everyone go before me and so many women struggled. And as Katie kind of worked with them, they had so many ways they were undercutting and qualifying their statements. And it was amazing to me because they all seemed so impressive to me. So I realized that and this isn't just a gendered thing. You know, you do tend to see it. And I realized a couple of things. I realized that people are not socialized. Women are not socialized to be loud and proud about who they are and what they bring to the table. And I also realized that women are socialized to be the people who get shit done, mm-hmm. which isn't a differentiating quality. No, ma'am. Like, Getting shit done is like the job description. It's like the way people write resumes and they list bullet points of what their job was supposed to be, but don't indicate how they were good at it. It's the same kind of thing. So I've done this exercise many, many times in rooms and so many people will say, oh, I'm an expert in getting things done and constrained resources or whatever. And then we'll talk about how everyone turns to them to get things done. And I'm like, but you and every other woman I've met is someone who gets things done. That's right. Like, that's what we do. Yeah. So we got to tease out what's different, what's special, what's mm-hmm. only you can do. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if there's one thing we could all benefit more from is knowing what is the thing only we can do? What, what do is we our bring? superpower? Yes. And that helps you build your career. That help, If you're building a business, that helps you figure out your hiring plan. Yeah. I mean, everything about knowing what owning your expertise and knowing what your superpower is mm-hmm. helps you understand what it is to fill your own gaps, to get what you need, yep. to ask for what's important, to offer mutuality when mm-hmm. you need a favor from someone. If you don't know what you can give in return, that is your superpower, it makes every ask a little more vulnerable. So right. everything about owning your expertise helps you build the infrastructure around you mm-hmm. for whatever success means to you. That's right. Ideally, I would imagine that those of us that are building careers or at a certain point in our careers, we're supposed to be actually leading more doing less. Yes. Leading with vision. My superpower is articulating a vision in a way that people want to get behind. Like as you move up and to the right, the doing is not where the money comes from. Like you don't make more money as a doer. You make more money as a visionary, as a leader, as a motivator, right? Yeah. I forget who said it, but someone I know was, someone was saying their hourly rate was super high. They were like, you're not paying for that hour. You're paying for the years of experience it came that it required for that hour to be the most productive and important one you've ever had. So I think that's something else that like I talked to a lot of people about how they set their rates and how they charge prices. And so much of it is mired in trying to guess like what's the right hourly rate. And Cindy Gallup is this woman entrepreneur who's very famous for saying, quote, the highest number that you can quote without just laughing out loud. Yeah. And I don't know if I've been great at doing that, but what I yeah. have found is that almost always when I quote, if they don't push back or try to negotiate, I could have quoted higher. It was I mean, too low. It was too low. I once back channeled to someone I know and said, and it was for an influencer program and I wasn't in charge of the program 
I was just consulting with the organization Mm. and I saw that the, in this case, it was all women, but it was the white women who their rates were just higher. And so I back channeled some of my women of color influencer friends. And I'm like, your rates are too low. Yeah. You could be getting more. It's clear. That's That's right. And do I think that if one is running a program, one should offer equal pay for equal work and equal influence and equal outcome? Yes. But people tend to ask for a quote and go off that. And that's a lot of the way that people don't get their full value. That's right. You know, it's interesting. I remember the first time I really read the research, the original stuff that was published around the imposter syndrome. I think it was in the Mm. 70s. And it was two feelings about this term. (laughs) I'm actually, I would love to have that conversation too, just as a parenthetic. But the line that jumped out at me from the research was the definition. And I think if I get this right, they said it had to do with an inability to own and process one's own accomplishments. And we can argue about whether it's a thing or not a thing, but I do believe that that phrase is resonant. Mm -hmm. I work with people, all the men and women, mostly women, Mm -hmm. but men and women Mm -hmm. who, when they finish something big, let's say, because I'm on the front lines of public speaking, right? I'm postcards from the edge, people that just want to, would rather die than get on a stage, but they have to get on the stage. And part of the process is when you come off stage and you did a good job, you got to take a hot second and be like, I just did a good job. And I need to knit that win Mm -hmm. into my being so that I can carry it with me. I think maybe there may be something there around owning your expertise. It's like when you level up, you got to sit with that and be like, well, I guess I can build an XYZ now because I just did. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So talk about the imposter syndrome too. Okay. Well, Listen, as you said, I've met lots and lots of people who have imposter syndrome of all genders. And I think it has become a very gendered term. Mm -hmm. That is one more thing women should fix about themselves if they want to succeed. And I want to say that, yes, we have imposter syndrome because of our internal work we need to do. But I also want to acknowledge that sometimes we have imposter syndrome because that's exactly how we're being treated. Like we don't belong in the room. Like we're not going to be listened to. Like we're going to be interrupted. Like someone's going to repeat the same idea we just said. And everyone's going to go, ooh, ah, about it when you said it like five minutes ago. That has happened over and over to more and more women. And if you don't feel imposter syndrome after being treated like that for years in your career, I would wonder what kind of sociopath you are. I mean, you know, (laughs) that is so true. So I just want us to think about what our internal work we can do and to acknowledge the systems we operate within, to acknowledge the society we are socialized and acculturated in. We are all soaking in it like Paul Malov. And yes, I've just dated myself, but That's awesome. you know, I remember those ads. <laughs> we are all soaking in our society like it's palm olive and nobody gets out alive. Nobody yeah. gets out without a little patriarchy in their brain, white supremacy yep. in their brain. It's there no matter who you are, no matter what your own identity is. And so water we swim in. It is the water we swim in. That might be a less dated way for me to say it. I like palm olive, girl. <laughs> I was right there with you. I saw those fingernails dipping right in. Exactly, exactly. I mean, just the ad, for those of you that are too young, there used to be an ad where there was like a see-through clear glass vat of dishwashing liquid palm olive in water. And you would watch a woman soak her very manicured fingertips and fingers in. And they were, what was the point of that, Elisa, that we were supposed to have softer skin after washing the dishes? 
Yeah, I guess. Oh, because it was like the manicurist was using it and the woman was like dishwashing liquid. And she says, oh, honey, you're soaking in it because it was supposed to feel so good to have your hands soaking in the palm olive. And yes, I never made that connection because of course that commercial was when I was too young to really be Uh thinking a lot about Uh how my manicure would get ragged from washing dishes. But I I guess that's the point. You can wash dishes. Don't you worry about your little manicure. Your manicure is going to be fine, honey. Get back to the dishes. (laughs) I never thought that. Yeah, that's the point, I guess. (laughs) Which actually leads me perfectly to the next question I have for you, the other territory I wanted to ask you about, which is talk about being treated like an imposter. Let's talk about the following number, 2%. Take it, sister. Back in 2007, when my two blogger co-founders, Lisa Stone and Jory Desjardins and I- Love Lisa Stone. Raised our first round of venture capital. Only 2% of venture dollars went to companies that were founded solely by women. Now, I want to clarify a couple of things. I hear this data cited incorrectly. It doesn't mean only 2% of women who ask get money. And it doesn't mean that a company that has male and female founders are part of that 2%. Only 2% of venture dollars go to companies that only have women founders, like we did, like other companies do. That was 2007. I won't even make you guess. That number hasn't moved an inch. In 2022, same number. And of course, if you look at women of color, it's like 0.6% or something ridiculous. Meanwhile, women have become ever more entrepreneurial and are starting businesses, particularly women of color. So I have been the data girl. Like I'm like, oh, there's so much data to support. And this isn't just for entrepreneurism and venture capital. This is for Fortune 500 companies. When you have gender parity or more women, not even necessarily parity. I think the number is really about 30%. More gender, more women in your boardroom, in your C-suite, on your development team, in your founding team. When you have more diversity, you get better results. You get higher multiples. You get better returns. You get more capital efficiency. And there's a whole stew of reasons But that's just the data. And speaking of Lisa Stone, she wrote a white paper when she was with the VC firm West River Group, synthesizing these analyses from all the big major analyst firms. And she just brought it all together about women and about people of color who were in the entrepreneurial space. And she synthesized all this data and to make it really easy, like, here you go, y'all. Like, here's the data every which way from Sunday by every major firm that supports this contention. So I've the been- The contention addicted. being that it's good for business to have- Good diversity. for business. You yep. will make more money. You will spend less capital. You will get higher returns, both on investment and higher financial returns from revenue. So I've been a data girl all my life. Like I use that data, but after a while you just go, well, obviously, despite the fact that at least the venture ecosystem pretends to be super, super data-based, they're not. And part of me is even like, I forgive you. We're none of us are really as data-based as we think we are. We're humans. We operate on gut and we operate on emotion. And the truth is our gut, sometimes when people say, trust your gut, I'm like, no, 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 no interrogate your gut because your gut's probably biased in some way. Mine too, everybody's. So data alone just clearly isn't going to make the argument. It hasn't made a difference. And that is 15 years. So I've been thinking, what will make the difference? I'd like to think you could just start saying, you know what? You know, it's the right thing to do. 
You know that people are being artificially gatekeeped out. You know all these things. Like, you know, it's the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do. Come on, just do the right thing. But I have kind of rejected that. You know, what that gets us is venture capitalists that start new funds for underrepresented founders. And then they allocate like this tiny percentage of their assets under management to go to those funds. So I'm always like, no, let us play in the big show. Like, we don't need to be here in your farm team. Like, just include us. Just be more inclusive in the normal work you do every day. Interrogate your gut. Interrogate your pattern matching. Because that's what it really is. Yeah. So I went to the Women's Venture Summit last week. And I started thinking, maybe there's some way. Yeah, there's good karma. Yeah, there's good data. But don't you just want to be the one? Don't you want to be the guy? who's like the maverick, the outlier, the contrarian, who finally breaks out of this 2% cage that all you dude VCs are stuck in. Don't you want to be the guy who's like given all the credit for really breaking the mold, really doing the thing? I mean, I don't know, but some of these folks, they really, really, really want to be considered on the bleeding edge. That's right. That's right. So I'm like, isn't this a bleeding edge thing you could do? I think that maverick argument is not a bad one, honestly. It appeals to just the right places in the ego. So I'm a big, big fan of that argument. And I think somebody needs to test it. But yeah, I, I got to figure out how to test it. <laughs> we got to test that. And hopefully some of the folks in my audience that are VCs will take that under consideration. But there's something else I wanted to just build on that with you. I was talking to someone recently who's a female founder and was out talking to venture capitalists. And when she was describing her background, she misspoke and she just used the wrong word. And then she corrected herself before the word was even out of her mouth. That's it. Imagine me saying, I'm a communication coach, but by accident, I say, I'm a culinary coach. And I'm like, I'm a cult. Sorry. I'm a communication coach. Right. I do A and B and C. The guy said to her, I'm not listening anymore. (gasps) you made a mistake. I'm not listening anymore. And that moment, this to me, this is the perfect metaphor that explains what it's fucking like to be a woman raising capital. If it had been a man who misspoke, they would have laughed about it. It would have been like, you need another cup of coffee, bub. Keep going. Right. To me, this is, and I just interviewed Lexi B, who's just a freaking fireball on my podcast. And she said the hardest thing is that she went to Stanford. She's just an amazing, brilliant, wonderful human being. She's like, when somebody mentors me as a Black woman, they're putting their reputation on the line (laughs) and I have to be perfect. Well, this is another reason that I'm like the data argument, A, it hasn't worked. And B, here's the scenario I see. Right now, I am utterly unsurprised that if you get more women or people of color, any underrepresented group into a boardroom C-suite founding team, that the numbers are better because anyone who makes it through that gauntlet, who makes it through the gatekeepers, they're excellent. They are the most excellent. They embody, you got to work twice as hard to get half as far. Now, there's another part of me that says, you know, most of the spaces I move through, which is where you've been too, are male yeah. spaces. Yeah. And I would say the vast majority of men are not conscious Correct. of this. And I think it's important to acknowledge that this shit's got to stop. But for a lot of people, it is operating at an unconscious level. 
So when you're talking to men in venture capital, when you're talking to men in positions of leadership, how might we get them to engage with the subconscious? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason I wrote that recent newsletter about this stat not changing because I'm like, what do we do? Because the data is there and it's not moving the needle. So I think a couple of things. Mm -hmm. I think that we are all operating within systems that are designed this way. Yes. And so most individual people, there's a great post or article by a sci-fi author named John Scalzi, which I often use to talk about privilege to particularly white men Mm. because nobody's life is easy. We all have had hardship. We all have had loss. We all have had disappointments. So the word privilege is really loaded for some people, especially if they didn't come from wealth, right? So they didn't come from wealth. Like hell to get to where they are. So they equate privilege with wealth. And so his post is all about saying, listen, you know, in a video game, a lot of video games, you can play them on different difficulty levels. So you're playing a game. And I really recommend Jane McGonigal's book, Reality is Broken, because she talks about what makes a game and why games are so compelling and how we feel so effective in games and why we collaborate and do so well in games. It's a great book. And she says a game is when you have to achieve an objective and there are obstacles. So for instance, with golf, if you could just walk up and drop the ball in the hole, what kind of game would that be? No, you got to try and hit it with a really small stick and you got to go distances and there got to be traps and obstacles. So- Scalzi's post says, basically, we're all playing video game and we all have obstacles. You don't just get to go to the end and say, I won. You have to fight the big bad. You have to get around obstacles. You have to jump over pits of despair, whatever it is. But you can choose to play it on the easy, medium, or hard difficulty level. And when you choose a different difficulty level, different things, harder obstacles, deeper pits of despair, longer journeys, more people trying to attack you and gatekeep you and keep you out. Well, in life, in the systems we're all in and living in, we don't really choose our difficulty level. It is chosen for us by who we are and who we appear to be, I will say. And so it's not that, let's use white men, it's not that they have no obstacles. It's not that they don't have to make it through to the end. It's that they're playing on a different difficulty level without choosing Mm it. You know, a baby doesn't get born and say, please make my life easier because of the color of my skin. They don't know. But then we're all raised to accept that as well. Oh, well, we know that, right? We know it's going to be harder. And so it's all about how can we, for me, I think it's all about how can we try to bring the difficulty levels more in line Yeah, and create fewer obstacles and less difficulty. It has to be a conscious choice because the way it's set up is unconsciously imprinted in us from very early. And how do we break out of our levels and help each other out? I think that's where you begin to see a lot of coalescing Mm. around identity. And people do that because they feel like they will get a certain level of support and help they need from people who can relate to their struggle. Mm. And you can tell that that's a good strategy because the backlash against it that's particularly happening now with this group set up that's going and suing the same group that got affirmative action kicked out of college is going after things like Fearless Fund that invests in women of color founders like Hello Alice that gives, I'm, ta- I'm sorry, Hello Alice gives like $20,000 grants to black women founders. Okay. For those who don't know about these lawsuits, just because I literally just learned about these 
today. Didn't know about mm. it. Mm. Elisa, quick recap. Who's suing who and why? So there's this group. They basically want to get rid of any diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging anywhere in any format. They started by attacking affirmative action in colleges. And they didn't have success for some time, but with the Supreme Court, they got success and they got affirmative action basically banned. And now they're going after private companies. They're going after public companies. They're just seeing how far they can take it. Now, some of these lawsuits are bound to fail. So I went and looked up yesterday how many scholarships are available to people based on identity, ethnicity, nationality, gender. There's like a million. They're going to start going after all of that. And these are private organizations and they can do that if they want to. But the fact is it's a silencing effect. It's a chilling effect. Yeah. It's cost. And how many organizations who are doing good work for people who need that support have the funds to fight and the well-funded. And the point is they just want to keep the status quo of who's in power. That's how you can tell it's a good strategy to coalesce around, you know, shared identity and shared issues because they're trying to kill it so it's badly. scaring the shit out of people and they're trying to come after it. But I don't think it's all that can work because at the end of the day, we need to change the power structure to look more like, in our case, our country. That means we need to work with people who are currently different than us across many identity markers and build coalitions and build partnership on this. And you know what? I agree with you that there are lots of good people who want that, who don't want Mm -hmm. to consciously be part of something that holds other people down. They're very committed to their own identity of being a good person. Correct. And they want an opportunity to be a a smart person person. and a smart person and a forward looking person and a person. Certainly there's a, we know that in this country, there's a cohort for whom the past is very nostalgic and desirable and things seemed simpler and easier for them then. And they probably were simpler and easier because they didn't have to worry about all these other people who weren't being treated fairly. So we know there's that cohort, but I don't think that's the majority cohort in this country. And statistically, statistically, it is not the majority cohort in this country. They are very loud. They have some very well-funded power players who want to keep them riled up and try to make the most of their dissatisfaction with the country changing. And that's what makes it seem like we're in a 50-50 fight, but we're not actually in a 50-50 fight. No. And actually, just to that point, the vast sweeping majority of spaces I've worked in over my bedrillions of years in business, it feels like, in the vast majority of cases, men in power position are stoked to be surrounded by excellence, whether it's black, white, male, female, whatever, binary, non-binary, doesn't fucking matter. What they want is excellence. The vast majority. The only times when that is not true is when they are afraid of my excellence. Then it blows up in my face. Then it completely fucking blows up in my face. But those are the minority. The vast majority of people want to be surrounded by excellence. Right. So that's their conscious want. Yeah. And so what we have to do more about is the unconscious pattern matching that makes them think that a white dude who dropped out of Harvard in a hoodie, that they're all going to turn into Mark Zuckerberg's. Because that happened once. Um, That's Sam Bankman Freed. I mean, look at Newman. How much money? How much Adam freaking Newman? Like, how much money did he get after just ruining WeWork, which was never that great 
an idea that should have gotten all that money in the first place. But anyway, leaving that aside, he got $250 million more million to fuck around with. After the failure of After. WeWork, he got $250 million. Failure, but the behavior that was super suspect, he did stuff that was really suspect. He gets $250 million more million, but this group is suing about Black women getting a $20,000 grant that's earmarked for them. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. It's yeah. the... Yeah. So it's so, like, honey, your sexism and your racism is showing. <laughs> well, just, yeah. 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 But I think to your point, I think most people think they just want excellence, but they come to think that excellence looks a certain only way or sounds a certain, a certain way, way yeah. Yeah. or went to a certain school. Like in my early days in Silicon Valley, it's like every single person who got promoted in advance at this one company I worked for had preferably a PhD from either Cal, Stanford, or MIT was the outlier that it could be MIT. If it was an MBA type role, Harvard could get in that. Okay, a Harvard mm-hmm. MBA. <laughs> you would just look at the list of people who are director level and above and go, they are all coming from the same place. Yep. And that's because that's what that leadership team really thought they make the best people. They turn out the best people because yeah. they had worked with other great people from there. And I'm sure, you know what? I worked with great people. All those PhD, Cal, Stanford, MIT guys, guy, and they were all guys and they were yeah. all white guys. They yeah. were great. Love them. They were great, but they can't have been the only people who could have been great. That's how the cycle gets perpetuated. But you um, know, I once hired someone because we vibed over how Buffy the Vampire Slayer was the greatest show ever. So I'm not innocent. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Oh, well, that's the heart. I mean, that's the emotion, right? It kicks in. Yeah. Speaking of emotion and Uh, high emotions, this is the last territory I want to cover with you, Lisa. And that is the territory of returning to work. Mm. This is hot. This is hotly discussed and debated. And there are big feelings around it. You and I have been in corporate environments. You and I have been our own bosses, solopreneurs. We have been in between. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what is your position? I've been thinking about this for a long time because here's how I see it. In the last 20 years, we have had multiple repeated major disruptions to the world of work. For those of us who are old enough, we have the dot-com bust. Yeah, we did. That was followed not too long after by the Great Recession. Don't forget 9-11 was in there. Right. Oh, yeah. 9-11, the dot-com bust, the Great Recession. When Silicon Valley started to rise again, it also started with the rise of the gig economy, which is just a way of pushing people off of being employees into contractors so the wealth is concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And the people who actually deliver the service you are offering are not given a share. So the rise of the gig economy, and then you have the pandemic lockdown. Overnight, an entire populace adjusted overnight to working from home fully remotely. And companies scrambled. And in that first six months, I think they really thought through, how are we going to do this technically? How are we going to do this logistically? Do we get better people better webcams? Do we get people better this, better that? And they figured it out. And then, you know, it dragged on and it dragged on and nobody seemed to have said, how are we going to do this culturally? Yeah. How are we going to make sure that people still feel engaged, that young junior employees get mentorship? They could have figured that out just like they figured out Zoom 
and higher internet for their employees, but they didn't. And what happened is these employees who all went home thinking they were going to go back and pick up their personal stuff in like two weeks, like it was going to be two weeks, right? We're all going to go home for two weeks. I remember that. The reward all these employees got for adapting overnight during a pandemic when like, let's not forget people were sick and dying all around you. Their reward after doing this is for people to start to now a year later say, we need you to return to office and start to say it, sort of blame it on the employees. Like, oh, we'll be more productive. We'll have better camaraderie. We'll have better this. We'll have better that. So that's your reward for adapting overnight and keeping things going. All these companies just kept going. They kept developing. They kept releasing. They kept doing their thing. And instead of acknowledging what an incredible feat that was for millions of people, we start to get hammered with messages. And frankly, almost exclusively from white male CEOs at big hierarchical companies that are still super into command and control. Yeah. So I think it's kind of, then you had the great resignation because people are like, oh, hell no. And now you have this even stronger, oh, the pendulum swung and the power's in the employer's hands again. And I don't think the power is really in the employer's hands again. They are trying a lot of tactics to scare people into returning. And it's not working. You see all this data about people, companies are struggling to get people to come back even a little. And when they do, they come back under duress. Does that mean that nobody likes the office? No, some people like the office. Some people like that. Some people need that. Okay. But you are seeing a major pushback. I don't think it's a coincidence that 2023 has been the year of the strike. Yeah. Because workers yeah. are like, we have had it. Yeah. And I think it was so avoidable. I think it all it would have taken was to think about the culture of remote work, not just the logistics of remote work and do something about it. And someone said, I was at a conference recently where a guy, he runs a law firm and I know law firms are really, re their reputation is being very stodgy, very hierarchical, yeah. you know, and he was like, we just need to get people in the office. We need that. that. And I'm like, but that's a management problem. That's mm. a you problem. That's a you problem. Figure it out. Don't expect yeah. your 20 something employees to figure out how to improve their camaraderie. Like they're new in the workforce and you're worried about them. Great. You're the seasoned one who is supposed to help figure that out. Yeah. So I just think that what we learned in these last 20 years of disruption is that employers are not your family. I've loved colleagues. I have loved my colleagues. I am still very close to many, many former colleagues, but they're not your family. When business requires it, they do not hesitate right. to end employment. And I think workers are like, why am I putting all my eggs in this employer's basket when that employer is not putting all their eggs in mine? Yeah. They're yeah. not thinking I'm the only person that they need to make sure come hell or high water, I stay. Yeah. So you know what? I need to have a little something, something on the side. I need to have multiple streams of revenue. I need to take more time for me because you know what? They're never going to give it to me. I just have to take it. And I need to manage my life differently because we have learned that employers aren't really loyal to us. And well, they can't. That, the system isn't set up for that. Yes. The system is set up for revenue. And listen, I'm not even shading that. You've been the head of a company. You know what? It's a math problem in some ways. But here's the question I have for you. And the other thing that I would like to add to the mix is Microsoft came out with this data 
there has been a 250% increase in meetings since February of 2020. Oh my God. I was just listening to Adam Grant talking about meetings. Yeah. Yes. It's like, think about how miserable we were with all the meetings pre-pandemic and then it got 250% worse. Wow. So the question then becomes, it is true. Everything, every word you said is true. It is also true that there's nothing better or there's no energy like the energy created with humans in a space physically. What is your point of view on the solution? How do we yes and this problem? And where do you see the opportunities, Elisa? So listen, I ran a company that produced live events, Blogger had conferences, right? And we always used to say those conferences like reinvigorated our community they brought us together and reminded us why we were together online. But I will also say that when we started blog her, the three of us all lived in the Bay area. But if you're familiar with the Bay area, you know that one of us living in Oakland, one in San Jose and one in half moon Bay, it was like, we could have been on other sides of the country. So the whole first two years before we got our first round of funding, we did not have an office. And every other week or so we would meet at a coffee shop in San Mateo, which was equally inconvenient to all three of us. And when we started hiring, I mean, we had already started having people work for us because we didn't have an office. We didn't care where they were. So as we grew, even at our peak, we had one third of people were probably in New York. One third Mm -hmm. of people were in Silicon Valley. And we all worked from home multiple days a week because of the commute times. And then one third of our employees were all over the place. So I'm well familiar with that challenge. That was baked in for us. I'm not saying it's not hard to adjust the fact if you were 100% in office, you then had to adjust to 100% out of office. That's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. Anyway, so we used opportunities to bring people together and we brought people together thoughtfully. And it was more than once a year. We did bring people together, even from all across the country. Like every employee came to our big annual conference, no matter where it was in the country, Mm -hmm. everybody came. And we all came a day early and had a day that was for us. And teams would get together in person. I mean, we did do that, but we also had to, this is dating back to the mid-aughts, right? We were using things like, I don't remember if it was Zoom, maybe it was Skype. It was probably Skype or GoToMeeting. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we also had processes around how we communicated to make sure that the remote people didn't feel less heard less seen, less important. And so I think it's very common now to talk about, oh, rotate leads of the meetings or rotate who starts or who does this or does that. But we were experimenting with all that stuff from the beginning because we were remote, half remote from the beginning. So I like the idea someone wrote, I'm trying to remember who, maybe it was you, Bronwyn. Someone wrote about how instead of, we used to work in an office and then have offsites to really concentrate our efforts. And I'm like, now we should work from home and have onsites to do that. And I don't care how regular you make it, monthly, quarterly, whatever it is, but that those on-sites should have a purpose. Mm. Because what I hear a lot of, the reason workers are so frustrated, I hear a lot of people who go to the office and then sit on Zoom all day in their office. Oh, that makes me insane. I'm very close to someone who basically has an hour commute. They are tracking that she logs in and logs out. They're tracking her. None of her team is in this office that's an hour away from her. It's a national team. So she comes in and spends two hours a day, maybe more because the way home is longer, two and a half hours a day in the car to have a bunch of phone calls and Zooms 
in a cubicle instead of in her home office. And I'm like, where is the That's logic insane. in that? That's where insane. is the cost effectiveness in that? Where is the humanity in that? It's awful. And you know what? She's looking to leave. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? And who... So it, what it makes me wonder though, Elisa, and I think the word you use when you and I were talking was optionality. And I think team by team, there are ways to come up with togetherness norms that make sense team by team. Because yeah. she's on a team that's sprinkled nationally. Right. As a team, if they came together and said, given where we are and given our goals, given the revenue number we have to hit or whatever the marker is, this is the human energy plan that we've come up with that's mm. going to get us to our goals, right? And yeah. I think the problem is they're centering how do we go back to the way things were? We want to feel the way we used to feel yes. going to the office. It's over. It's never it's, going to be that way. Never going back. It's so You can only move forward. That's right. And yes, it's a huge real estate problem, but we're not talking yes. about real estate. Right now, we're talking about you hitting your numbers or your team hitting its innovation targets, wherever the fuck it is. If you center the goals and you center your team and where they are and who they are, you're going to come up with a plan. And that optionality, I think, is where you're kind of landing, right? Well, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, spurred by a lot of things, but also spurred a lot by my own life, where at the end of last year, I came out of a full-time, early-stage, C-level startup gig. And I have some things going on in my family that require my attention And for me, it's parental, but I've been talking a lot to my former blogger, co-founder Jory, and for her, it's her kids. The pandemic did a number on children and teenagers. And so she's got her own things going on. And so we both had over the last however many years, a lot of life happening. And I sit there and think to myself, I probably could have gotten 75% of what I got done for my last gig. I probably could have gotten all that done in quarter time. If I didn't have the overhead of all the meetings, if I didn't have the overhead of some of the things we did, if we had really, really focused in, and that would have been good for their bottom line, that would have cost them less. And it would have been good for my sanity of trying to manage all this new stuff going on in my life and trying to deal with it. And one kind of optionality is the old work-life balance. But I also think that it would be great if employers realized that most of your employees are doing something on the side. And I'm not saying it's something for money on the side, but most of your employees have something they really care about on the side. And most of your employees have family stuff and responsibilities and they don't have an admin or a personal assistant or whatever it is. Or some of us don't have wives. Don't have wives. Don't have... (laughs) They are the fucking wives. (laughs) Right. So like, let's all just be real and say, this is happening. And all of this return to office drama is about broken trust. It's that employees don't trust employers because we've seen over the last 20 years how much value we really have. Not enough to keep us when things get tough, you know, or not enough to prevent decisions that aren't great for our life. And employers don't trust employees. And part of that is probably earned because when employees get disgruntled, but you know, when employees start burned to out, the word you're looking out, for is burned out, <laughs> burned out, skeptical, cynical, jaded, cynical. disappointed. Yes. Yeah. You know, you're probably right that they're not giving you their 120%. You know why? Because there is no 120%. 
We all only have 100% and we have to fit everything into that 100%. And most of us don't have special help to do that. When people say, oh, Beyonce has the same 24 hours in a day. No, 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 no. No, she doesn't. Both she and Taylor, let's just put those two icons, they've got so much help. And time bends to meet them. Yes. Yeah. Good time point. does not bend to meet you and I or no, any, anybody Good else point. listening so to this. So somehow I feel like we need to create an ecosystem of employment in this country that rebuilds trust going both ways yeah. and acknowledges real life yeah. and stops. It's like, did you watch the show Severance? I didn't. Oh, it's so, so good. The premise was that there was this company that installed a chip in some of their workers' heads that when they went down to a certain floor of the building, the chip was activated and they didn't remember anything about their life. And when they took the elevator up and went back to their life, they didn't remember anything about their work. It's severed. Whoa. And I feel like employers, that's like wish fulfillment for some employers. That's right. They wish they didn't have to know that you thought about your life, but that's not how we are. That's not who we are. And I acknowledge there's so many different industries where things are, you know, I'm not speaking about, let's say the quick serve restaurant industry, or there's so many industries where I can't really speak with great knowledge about their problems. But when I'm talking about like the knowledge worker industry, tech industry, all of these different industries, I just think we could find a better way where the trust could be rebuilt. Well, we don't really have a choice. We sort of have to find a better way. It's not, you're not putting the genie back in the bottle. No, and it's just going to keep swinging one way and then the other way and then the other way. And I think the companies that start to, how might we, this question, the companies that start to yes and this issue are going to be the ones that fumble around with experimentation and land on something that is better than what we've got. And I think that's the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, And I will say some companies do it now. There are companies who are like, I don't care when you work, as long as you get the work done. There are companies that are fully remote and have been and have figured out a myriad of ways to make everybody feel like they are working together as a team. And that's important. Like, I'm not saying it's not important. It's totally important, but you don't get everybody to work better as a team, to row together as one by being more stick than carrot, by being punitive and penalizing. Like, that's not how you do it. And designing systems that fundamentally don't work for the people that are supposed to be using the systems. Okay, Elisa, you continue to be an absolute resource, a fountain of information, knowledge, and sense-making. And I'm just grateful. I want everyone listening to go sign up for Elisa's newsletter. How do they go sign up for this weekish? So it is elisacp.substack.com. I am on a Substack. I'm Elisa CP on TikTok, Threads, Instagram. And my website is elisacp.com. So Elisa L-I-S-A. Yes, CP. So it's, you, you can find, at least a CP, you can find me almost everywhere. And the podcast is called The Op-Ed the op-ed page. page. That's right. That's op I get it. Yeah, because it's my page. name. Yeah, it's a play on my name. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Bronwyn. And you just keep doing your thing and keep doing your writing. I find your writing incredibly insightful. And I just thank you. I know how I... Having a newsletter myself, I know how hard it is and you're nailing it every time. Thank you, Bronwyn. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great talking to you. Hey, if you haven't already... 
hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. Lastly, if your company or organization needs a high voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics and you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. That's Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Take care and shine on. We need your light.